Welcome to Professoring, the show that gives you the R&R. The real and realer about life in academia. I'm Badia Ahad Lagardi, literary scholar, native Chicagoan, stepmom, amateur golfer, and co-host. I'm Anthony Ocampo, sociologist, writer, Los Angelino, puppy parent, Virgo, and your other co-host. <laughs> and today on this episode of Professoring, we're going to be talking about the other R&R, rest and recreation. So the reason we're talking about this is because anyone that's a professor knows that there is this ethos that being a workaholic, working, quote unquote, all the time, working weekends, working nights, that's just what you got to do in academia. And so Badia and I were hoping to dispel this a little bit and talk a little bit about ourselves, our forms of recreation, and go from there. So Anthony, what do you do for fun? So funny story, I once had to rewrite a biography where, you know, you do these biographies for your area of study, like where you teach, what department, blah, blah, blah. And one time, whoever requested the bio came at me and was like, do you have any hobbies? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, what are those? I'm a serious scholar. I don't have hobbies. We want to know that you're like a person. And so (laughs) sitting next to me was my partner. And I turned to him and I was like, look at this email I got that's asking about my hobbies. And he just starts busting out laughing (laughs) because he's like, work is your hobby. Right. I was like. Anyway, the point is, I I definitely relate to the workaholic thing. I grew up in an immigrant family where working multiple jobs and working all the time was like valorized by my family. And so when I got in academia, it was just sort of the logical thing to continue. But obviously, we learned that when you work too much, you have moments of burnout that bite you in the butt without warning. And so I think I had a couple of those moments where, I don't know, I was just, you know, maybe I was doing the dissertation, applying for jobs, whatever, but you're just on the work grind all the time. And then at some point you just have some days where you're just like, I cannot get up. And so it was those kind of moments that were like, okay, we got to balance this stuff a little bit more. So hobbies of mine include Netflix, Okay, um, I'm just going to raise my hand here. Okay. Dude, is Netflix a hobby? I feel like that's not a hobby. That's, okay. The reason (laughs) I don't want to talk about my once hobby is because it's kind of cringeworthy. Well, okay. So are we going to... Like do I'll the whole real and realer thing. Okay. Because then you're not being real if you're not talking about your like real okay. stuff. Right? Okay. So when I first. And Netflix ain't no hobby. But anyway, go ahead. When I first got my job as a professor, <laughs> I moved from LA to the suburbs of Chino Hills and was like, I have no friends. So I'm going to join a CrossFit gym. That's perfectly acceptable. Why is that cringeworthy? I mean, have you ever met anyone that does CrossFit? All they do is talk about CrossFit. It's just very intense. People are really into it. And okay, so there's some good stuff. Obviously, what was great about CrossFit is that I had no exercise routine at this point. Mm -hmm. I had lived on a diet of Jack in the Box and (laughs) junk food and whatever. I was doing my dissertation. Anyway, so... 
I had an income. I had a new crib. I was in a new city. And so I was like, I need to make friends. So I joined a CrossFit gym and it was, it was pretty cool. Like I actually, I don't know why you were scared to speak about that. What are your hobbies? Oh, are you done? Netflix and CrossFit? Okay. So once CrossFit (laughs) ended, uh, so CrossFit again, it's like, what are you doing now? Like, what are your main hobbies now? Like, what is the stuff that like takes you out of that academic headspace? Cause I think that's what's so important about having a life outside of academia is that we spend so much time in our heads uh-huh. and it's like so easy for even for things that are supposed to be enjoyable to then become work. Oh my we God, go yes. see like a film and then we're doing like a critical analysis of the film as opposed to just soaking it in and having the experience and letting it you know, just kind of do its work as a form of entertainment. Yeah. So I have to pick things that I know that I'll never be good at ever. <laughs> so uh, we watch a lot of HGTV and one of our favorite shows is Flea Market Flip. And one thing about working at a university that's great is that they are throwing away furniture all the time. <laughs> they do. So we have these, we got these like architecture tables from the architecture department and we totally refurbished them, put a whiteboard on top, painted them. They totally don't match. And what's funny is we finished these, we made this gorgeous flipped furniture and then we couldn't even fit it through the door. It was, it was a mess. But I remember that stage mm-hmm. in your life because you were posting like the pictures, yes. I think on your Twitter account. Yeah. And actually that was pretty cool, Anthony. It's good because here's the thing about flipping furniture. Um, it's physical. Yeah. You have to like lift things and they're heavy <laughs> yes. and you paint yes. and you mess up a lot. And so it's just really good to just not be sitting at a computer reading something or thinking about something or writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, literally getting your hands dirty is probably the best thing. So after that, done a little bit of gardening, all into the succulents, cause we are <laughs> not good at maintaining anything but succulents. Okay. And should I say this? This is real and realer, right? So. <laughs> Here's my secret one that I have never told you. I think you've probably told me. I think I've never told you. I think you probably so, have. So I was going through not the best time in my career. We all have our lows in academia. And in a moment of whatever, I go on Yelp and I go search for singing lessons. Oh, no. You didn't tell I me did that. I did not tell you that. <laughs> so I went on the Yelp and I Googled or whatever. I think I it's Yelped. just called Yelp. I went on Yelp and I searched singing lessons and I found this person and just was like, I've never sang before, but I'm Filipino and I like to sing. Okay. Um, I never sang in front of an audience, but... What does you being Filipino have to do with Oh my God. Filipinos love to sing. There are YouTube videos all (laughs) all over the YouTube that show Filipino children in malls singing on their magic mics. I will show you later. Okay. It's a thing. So Filipinos love to sing, but I've never sang in front of an audience. I have never gotten lessons of any kind besides like singing at Catholic school, choir, or whatever. So I found some dude and was like, I've never done this. <laughs> I want to take singing lessons. He's like, okay, what do you like to sing? And you know, true to my very queer spirit, I was like, I want to sing Disney songs, musicals, and 90s R&B. And for a whole year, I took secret singing lessons. Really? That nobody knew about until I just told you right now. Well, and it was amazing. I feel honored. Well, you're, you're not just telling me, but you're, you're telling everyone. So that's, uh-huh. uh, that's exciting. 
I appreciate you being real, Anthony. I'm actually just sad that we can't hear the fruits of your one year <laughs> labor. Do you want to sing like a bar? Do you remember how I said that <laughs> I wanted to pick things I would deliberately not try to get good at or could ever be good at? Well, this is one of those You found things. it. I found it. So here's the thing about taking secret singing lessons is that- Why does it have to be a secret? Because I think that like so much of being an academic, I mean, life on social media is about every little thing and i'm guilty of this like every little newsworthy quote unquote thing that happens you post it and then you get all concerned about the likes i heard actually oprah talk about this convo she had with tony morrison where she was like tony morrison told oprah everyone needs a place in the world that's just theirs Mm -hmm. nobody knows about and so that was my thing and i was like let me try this experiment and I would drive and like spend an hour once a week singing John Legend or the theme song of Coco or. Well, I'm just sad that we can't all hear some little something. I'll sing if you sing. Uh, that's a no. Okay, there's okay, your answer. Okay, all right then. <laughs> I did not have singing uh-huh. lessons. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, I know my limits. So. Uh-huh. Stay in my lane on that one. Well, what do you do for R&R? Well, you know, I do quite a few things for R&R, but my main thing uh-huh. is golf, which I mentioned in my intro. Uh-huh. So <laughs> very uh, unusual for lots of reasons. Why is it unusual? Well, you know, it's usually me and a bunch of old white guys out uh-huh. there hanging out. I live in the Midwest, so it's not like it's this golf mecca or anything <laughs> um but i have to say that uh it's it's become a very intense hobby for me i really love it so much so that i now try to structure my vacations around places where i can play golf it came about cuz i you know i'm a self-proclaimed urban girl mm-hmm. but then you know i met a guy Fell in love. It's always how it starts. Isn't it though? (laughs) I was minding my own business, living my like bachelorette life, you know, downtown Chicago and met a guy and got married and moved out to the suburbs. So became a stepmom. Hmm? He played golf. Yeah. Yes. Uh, My husband has played golf since he was a kid. My father-in-law is actually a PGA certified instructor. So he was my first teacher. Yeah. But when I moved out to the suburbs, I was kind of lonely. And, you know, my whole social life was really in the city. And one of the things that my mom used to always tell me is, if you can't get out of it, get into it. And so I was like, well, I'm definitely in this. and I can't get out. So, um, so we live like in like a two mile radius to, I want to say like five or six different golf courses. Wait, 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 wait. There's going to be multiple golf courses in one area. <laughs> I clearly yeah, do not I mean, play golf. So the area where I live, it, it used to be kind of uh, like a weekend's little retreat place for people coming from the city and like, you know, that's where they hang out. So they have all these country clubs there and things like that. And now the clubs are public so people can actually use the facilities and all that. But anyway, so um, I started taking lessons and 
talk about something you'll never get good at. Like literally the only people who are really good at golf are the people that you see on TV. Your Instagram golf photos look very nice though. Really? Do I look posh? You do look posh. That's great because I really aim to be posh sometimes. Wait, wait, wait. So did the <laughs> golfing start during the dating? You're like, oh. Or did no, it... it started really when I moved out there. Okay. Um, so I had lessons and then I actually met some other black women who were around my oh, age nice. who we were about the same level, like beginners. And so I met friends and we started hanging out together and start golfing together. So they're my crew and you know we go out there and people underestimate us all the time. <laughs> and um, not just because we're black, but because we're women um, and also just because we're younger. And so they think we don't know what they're doing. And then we drive the ball, you know, damn near 200 yards and show them what it's all about. So that's like, yeah, it's called driving, right? Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> So for me, what it, I, I love it because it's an activity that gets me outside, you know, in the summertime. So even if I feel like, I think a lot of academics, as you well know, try to use summer to get like all the work done. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, oh, I've been teaching all you know year and now this is my time. And so I know a lot of folks like stay in and stay hunkered over their computers. You know, it just keeps me outside. It keeps me active. It keeps me social. It's a game where you have to think a lot, mm -hmm. which is good because it's like you have to think creatively. Yeah. Yeah. So I really enjoy it. So that is my number one hobby. And what I also just last thing like is the fact that my girlfriends are not academics. Oh, that's what I was going to ask. Actually, what? is typical academic would be like, oh, my gosh, I'm golfing. I'm a black woman. I have a group of black women golfers. This is like the most amazing <laughs> academic study. <laughs> Let me research it. And yeah. that's not what you're doing. No, no. And you have a crew of folks that like probably don't care about your CV. They don't. And if you asked any of them, like, what is my research on or, you know, I mean, they know, generally speaking, like what I teach and like what my area of expertise is, uh -huh. but they don't know, they don't care. And I just think that that's one of the most important things that academics can or should, I should say, try to have is a group of people who are there to remind you either explicitly or not that your work isn't your life. Ugh. Like it's just a dimension of who you are. Yeah. But I think a lot of times it's easy to fall into that trap. And it's also, I don't know. I think sometimes people make you feel guilty if work isn't your life. You should always have something in the hopper. You should always be kind of working on this project or that thing. But sometimes, you know, your, your mind needs a break mm -hmm. and your body needs a break. <laughs> And that's why it's important, I think, to have a life outside of academia. Yeah, the thing I like about life outside of academia, whether it's my terrible singing or the gardening or the furniture flipping, is that it reminds me that I was a whole person before I even decided to become a professor. Like, yeah. I existed in those years yeah. and everything was hunky-dory. And then all of a sudden, you do the PhD thing, you do the academic job thing, and you think, or at least I'm guilty of this, like, think it's like the most important part of your identity, yeah. right? And I think that to some extent, there's this thing where however you clock your hours, that's gonna become your identity. So right. if you work a lot, 
then obviously work's going to be your identity. But if you balance it out with activities like this, being around folks that ground you, it just helps you see that like even without the CV, even if you like lost the job one day or whatever, you'd still persevere and move on because we're all resilient creatures. I have my family who do this. So I am an only child, but I grew up with a ton of cousins. Mm -hmm. Over the years, we've become this orchestra of like smack talking people. And so we were, at, I don't know, it was Thanksgiving or Christmas or something. And all my cousins were in the living room and there's like a copy of something I wrote. I think it was my book. And one of my cousins picks it up and starts reading it in this like hilarious mocking voice. <laughs> That's so sad. And everyone in the room just busts out laughing. And all I could do in that moment was appreciate the fact that they're a reminder that the work is not the only thing that matters. Like this hilariousness of them clowning on me is actually what I find to be more me than yeah. my work. Yeah. So that's great. Part of what saves me from being totally subsumed by academic life or work life is that, and I think that this may be something that we have in common, mm -hmm. which is that I work in my hometown. So a lot of people move for the job. Right. And then all of their friends are people that they work with, or those are their first friends, at least. You know, they may be their colleagues or, or whatever. And so, because I work in the place where I grew up, I feel like I have this almost inherent boundary to mm -hmm. begin with, right? So, you know, the friends that I've had since high school and even elementary school are still there. And so we hang out all the time. My family's there, my sister's there, you know? So I don't, I don't know if I've ever had the like, someone bringing me back down to earth moment because uh, for better or for worse, I think I've always tried to treat the institution as a job. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that it's a job that I don't value or a job that, you know, I don't want to diminish that in some way, but to me, it's just, an aspect of my life that is not really that much more important than any other aspect of my life. So I, I won't say that I've had to have anybody ground me, but I do say that it's important for myself to not always surround myself with people who I'm associated with in a professional sense. Yeah. So that's kind of my thing. Which I've been dying to ask you this question. I know when someone's listening to this, there could be that inclination to think, oh, you know, we're just like saying self-care matters or self-care is important. But mm -hmm. I think like everything we've talked about and we've hinted on it, you know, whether it's being a black woman or being queer, that there's something a little bit deeper to everything we're saying, which is, and I wanted to ask you this, you know, here we are, mm -hmm. both academics of color talking about leisure. Yes. And I am sure... <laughs> Somewhere along the way, someone has said, yo, you got to work twice as hard yes. to get half as far. There's obviously a mismatch between everything we're talking about and that thing that gets so ingrained in our heads. And I just wanted to ask you, in what ways do you see it as important for us or for other, you know, folks of color, women mm -hmm. of color, queer people of color, mm -hmm. any any group that feels like they're underrepresented 
to be vocal about talking about leisure. <laughs> you know, we are talking about leisure and we are talking about things that are important to value outside of academia. And it's because, I don't want to sound like so like nihilistic or dystopian or something, but you know, I think a lot of it is we can make some progress in certain areas, I think inch by inch. But I don't know if we'll get to the space in my career span, at mm -hmm. least, where academia becomes a place that is really going to affirm the work that we're doing. It's going to align with our own values. It's, I think it's always just going to be a bit of a fight. Mm -hmm. I don't know how healthy it is to spend an overwhelming amount of your time and energy living with that kind of tension. Yeah. So if you don't have a space for yourself outside of that, mm -hmm. I think that that is going to create a wealth of problems for you in terms of your health, in terms of your social relationships, in terms of your familial relationships. And I honestly just don't want to give academia that much power mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in that way. So if it's taboo to talk about leisure as a space that allows you to breathe and to live and to be a human being first, then, I mean, oh well. It's so funny because I've met a lot of academics, different disciplines, different institutions, different parts of the country. and. One thing I'm always floored by is that when you ask the question, what do you do for fun? And there's a pause. There's a pause. <laughs> or, you know, once they get beyond the like canned answer of like, I do salsa dancing or some other yeah. activity with high cultural capital or something, people are stumped. Yeah. And I have literally had folks ask me, what do you do for fun? And I've, I have more than once given my, here are the, 10 things that are my go-to for any given, yeah. any moment of the week, which include things like going to yogurt land or Chipotle or <laughs> getting my eyebrows threaded. <laughs> That's not fun. It is. You don't think it's fun? It feels so, I feel so pretty. Okay. All after. right. All right. All right. Well, yeah. We'll go. I'm not going to judge your fun. So do what um, you do. Yeah. So that obviously Netflix um, but you know what actually is kind of surprising that I never realized was walking. As simple as as yeah. an activity as that sounds, walking is the one thing that will f always manage to get me out of my head. Yeah. So I do a lot of coaching for NCFD's faculty success program. And one of my most memorable and difficult coaching sessions where I felt like, I don't know if I f failed this person, but we were talking about the fact that she's a workaholic. Mm -hmm. And I had never met anyone who didn't know how to begin to explore hobbies. Like, she's like, so how do you know what you like to do for fun? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't know how I know. I just know that like when I do certain things, it's fun for me. Um, and so, but she was really at a loss. Like, she's like, I don't even know where to start. Like, what do I start doing to determine if I like it or not? Yeah. And I was like, are we really? That's I, real. It, 
It's so that real. happens a lot. But I could I could not believe it, and I actually like I said I didn't know how to even frame like a uh, a program for uh-huh. her, and I'm like, well, you know, try this. Try, I mean, I like throwing things at her, and she's like, I'm like, do you like to exercise? Do you like to, you know, just something? Um, so I don't know where we landed, but it was just such a strange thing. I thought that, you know, this idea of being so disconnected Mm -hmm. from leisure that you don't even know where to start. Yeah. I always tell folks, think of it as something you cannot put on your CV because I am shocked at how many people are like, oh, my treat for the day, it will be to read this extra article that I found. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, no, don't do that. (laughs) But um, I like Brene Brown, who's a social work professor, public speaker extraordinaire she calls it play which is essentially activity without purpose Mm -hmm. so if something fits in the category of activity without purpose whether it's chipotle or eyebrow threading or (laughs) what are your what are what are your go-to's for what for like you can't just like go golfing no like in the next five seconds no i definitely cannot because it's a tundra out there i like going to the gym so i exercise out of necessity but also because i enjoy it Uh uh-huh if anyone has ever seen me do the alumni calls for fsp faculty success program you'll notice my lovely peloton bike you have a peloton i have a peloton i am part of the (laughs) tribe so i was an early adopter of peloton so i got mine like back in 2016. no soul cycle for you no, so this was another consequence of my moving out to the suburbs is that I had like a cycling class that I really loved in the city. And then when I moved out to the burbs, I didn't have anything. And then I was like, Peloton seems <laughs> like the closest I'm going to get to my old cycling class. So I got it and I fell in love with it and I still ride it like three times a week. So I do my Peloton bike. I am ridiculously addicted to BBC dramas. What's a... Oh, like Killing Eve. Killing Eve is one that I like because I stand Sandra O. Oh, like whatever Sandra uh-huh. O oh does, I'm here for it. I love Luther because, I mean, Dries yes. Elba. Almost all the kind of standard Sherlock. So BBC dramas are kind of my thing. Mm. Um, so I'm always like looking for a new show on my BritBox or my Acorn subscription or something like that. Yeah. And you know what's funny is we end up, here's the thing about having cable. There are movies that we've seen 50 million times and we find solace in rewatching Pretty Woman for the 30th time. <laughs> <laughs> That's a go-to of mine. But yeah, okay. there's endless amounts of shows. Before we kick it over to our next segment, we're going to hear a little bit from NCFDD. The National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity, or NCFDD, is a professional development organization with the mission of changing the face of power in the academy. We aim to strengthen the higher education system and improve the academic experience by offering specialized coaching and mentoring to faculty, postdocs, and graduate students. Please visit us at www.facultydiversity.org to learn more about our services, including institutional membership, our faculty success program, and our on-campus workshops. I, first of all, 
need to introduce this next segment, which will be a regular thing that we're doing on Professoring, which is, and as dorky as it sounds, we decided to call it peer review. It's not dorky. <laughs> it's clever. It is clever. Because we all know what peer review is. Yes. So in the world of academia, peer review is that lovely thing where you write an article that you spend years on you workshop it and then you send it out to a, an academic journal or perhaps you send it to a university press and then some anonymous experts in the field just go to town <laughs> on whatever you have spent your blood sweat and tears submitting and provide critiques or really harsh comments about the project in the hopes that it will advance or move the project forward. So in academia, there's this sort of thing about like reviewer number one is, is like nice and re reviewer number two is like... Not nice. <laughs> the, the, the hater. And so... They're perpetually cranky. Yeah. So yes. that's what we're going to do. We're just going to... Every episode, we're going to end with this thing called peer review. Okay. Where we'll randomly pick a topic and we'll go to town and talk about it. Yeah. So today's topic is literally peer review. Oh my gosh. Peer review. What are we talking about? Are we talking about being the reviewer or being the submitter? Oh, I thought we were talking about the process. Okay. You start. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gathering my thoughts. So what is my hot take on peer review? My hot take on peer review is that it is a process that is in need of a radical overhaul. Uh-huh. Because, let me tell you, it's so problematic, right? I mean, I'm not saying it's not a good thing, obviously, to get feedback. And we want books and articles out there that have gone through some kind of review process. Mm-hmm. However, from the standpoint of someone who is sending work out, it is damn near impossible to get anything published in a, I think, decent amount of time, partially because it's so difficult for presses and journals to find people who are willing to actually do the work because it's normally unpaid labor or it's very low paid labor, right? So I actually just recently got a request to review a manuscript and you know, it's like almost 400 pages and they're like, we'll give you $150 as a, I mean, and granted it's not like you're doing it for the money, right? But it's just a lot. And so it's a lot of work. And so people don't wanna do it. And I feel bad for the writers because you need to actually move through the process. So I obviously believe in the system of peer review, but I think that the structure of peer review is so broken that something has to change with that whole process. It's just a lot of labor. And people's baggage yes. comes through yes. in the reviews. And there's no accountability because they can say whatever they want. They can say whatever they want and they can make comments that are, I mean, whenever I review something, what's top of mind for me is what can I say that will make this better, right? So I'm always trying to think about what kind of feedback can I give that's going to actually elevate whatever it is I'm looking at. Even if it's something that I'm not recommending for publication, 
I want this person to know what they'll have to do in order to bring it up to speed. But sometimes you just get stuff that's like super cranky and super unhelpful. And it's just like, clearly this person had a really bad day and then decided to pick up my <laughs> my article or whatever it is. And I'll never forget, I once submitted a journal article about this um, book because I'm in literary studies and so I write about novels. But the first line of the peer review or of one of the peer reviews said something like, first, I just want to say how much I hate this book. And I find the protagonist of it to be annoying and whiny. And I'm thinking... What are you going to do with that? There are a few bizarre things, right? First, why are you writing this down? Second, you're telling, you know, because you're telling me like this is the lens through which you're like now reading my piece. Also, you could have just said no. I mean, the title of the book is in the title of the article. So if that's something that you really don't want to be reading about or you don't like, just decline to review it. They would know from the first, literally, the description. The title. Yeah. And, you know, here's the thing about peer review, too. You can have a set of really positive reviews and then the editor will be like, nope. (laughs) I've had that happen. Really? I've never had that happen. I submitted something for a journal which will remain unnamed, of course. And, you know, the feedback was generally positive. It was just like f- extraordinarily short reviews, maybe like two or three pages worth of comments for bo- both reviewers. Mm-hmm. And I addressed all of them, sent it back, and then they came at me and they were like, no, we're sorry, we can't publish it because we only accept and they'll throw out some like arbitrary statistic of like how selective they are and so i got got rejected so i have a lot of thoughts about peer review yeah and you know from both and i want to talk about like the reviewer side of things so i now have a rule okay and my rule is i will only review pieces where I feel like what I say will end up deciding whether something moves forward or not. So the reason I say this, let me be more clear. As a someone that writes about Filipino-Americans and in academia, there's not a ton of Filipino-American professors in different disciplines. I get everything that has anything to do with Filipinos <laughs> and queer people of color, by the way. So, but more so Filipinos. Uh-huh. So. I'll get stuff from religious studies, sociology, obviously, literary studies, education. Mm-hmm. And I'll always accept the request to do Filipino articles because I know what it's like from the submitter's point of view mm-hmm. to have a reviewer that just doesn't get it. Get it, yeah. They just don't get it. I don't know. The only Filipino they've ever met is their nurse or something. I don't know. But <laughs> they just don't get the essence of the project. And so I feel like in that situation, as much as peer review is time consuming and draining, um, I've been that person whose review, despite the other hypercritical reviews, has salvaged That's awesome. That's a good feeling. Salvaged the the piece. And speaking of which, one of which I have a deadline for today, but I'll do it later. One of the pieces I salvaged, I literally have a deadline well, for it today. I'm happy that this conversation prompted that uh, 
that item on your to-do list. I so, know. and I requested an extension too. But yes, um, but it feels really good. Good. Because when you do a peer review, you get all the reviews. So I got to see reviewer number whatever give this really unsympathetic read of it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, they just don't get it. And so I just went to town and really got to like highlight this is why this piece matters. Mm-hmm. And the editor was like, oh, you're right. And so that felt That's really cool. good. So I got to be guardian angel a little bit with the peer review. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to say that that takes us to the end of this episode of Professoring. We are done for today. Of course, we could talk about this forever. Forever. But, <laughs> but. if you want to talk about forever... You should email podcast at faculty org. Thank you. 